Truth Podcast. This podcast is brought to you by the Association for Diplomatic Studies and Training. For more, check out our website at ADST.org. ADST, American Diplomacy, Warts and All. My name is Jack Stuckel. In the 1970s and 80s, thousands of Jews living in the Soviet Union tried to emigrate to the United States or Israel, but were denied visas by the Soviet government. These refuseniks, as they became known, were viewed with suspicion by the KGB and often faced marginalization and harassment for wanting to leave the country. Natan Sharansky, a Jew whose exit visa was denied in 1973, became the chief spokesperson for this community and advocated fiercely for the rights of refuseniks and human rights in general. Imprisoned by the Soviets in 1978 on charges of espionage and treason and sentenced to 13 years of forced labor, Sharansky became an international symbol of the refuseniks' cause. Raymond Smith was the Minister Counselor for Political Affairs at the American Embassy in Moscow from 1976 to 1979 and was the primary point of contact between refuseniks and the American government. These are his experiences. Uh, one of my jobs in the consular section was to interview people who were trying to emigrate to the U.S. There were basically two kinds of people who were allowed even to apply to emigrate to the U.S. Those were Armenians, and not any Armenians really, but those who had uh, emigrated to Armenia from the Middle East after World War II and had, in the Soviet regime's view, never really adjusted to living in, our, in, in the country, and, um, and Jews. Uh, Jews were allowed to apply to emigrate. So. Um, I would be uh, interviewing these people, um, and the the U.S. had pretty much an open door policy toward anyone who wanted, who was able to get permission to leave the Soviet Union and come to the U.S. Um, with an exception, that is, if you had been a voluntary member of the Communist Party, you were barred from admission to the U.S. Well, a lot of people have been members of the Communist Party for a variety of reasons. And so one of the things we always had to ask was, were you a voluntary member of the Communist Party? And if they answered yes, we had a load of problems, uh, or they had a load of problems, um, because they were barred from admission. Uh, so we would have to conduct quite extended interviews to establish the situations under which they entered the Communist Party. Uh, during the time that I was there, for example, policy in the changed in the U.S. on this to consider that uh, having joined the party essentially for economic reasons uh, was no longer considered voluntary uh, membership in the party. If you had to join it to get a better job, you know, to have a decent life, we came to interpret that as being a non-voluntary membership rather than a voluntary membership. And, you know, we had situations where someone would uh, say they'd been a voluntary member, provide us some background. We would send in the case to Washington. They'd come back denied. And uh, we'd call them back in and tell them they were denied. And, you know, you would have a real meltdown on your hands. And for good reason. Because when someone... The first step in, in receiving permission to emigrate from the Soviet Union was to receive uh, an exit visa and a passport to depart the country. Once you receive that exit permission, you lost your job, you lost your apartment, and you were basically out in the cold. And you, you, these people would leave, let's say, Yerevan, travel to Moscow, having sold everything, um, and staying in a hotel, come and apply to 
for permission to emigrate to the U.S., expecting that they'd be in the U.S. in a week or two. And they'd be turned down, and they would have nowhere to go. Mm -hmm. um, they'd pretty much cut their ties. Uh, so it was, it was a, a difficult situation for them. Um, generally, um, we were convinced, and uh, in the course of looking into their situations carefully and conducting more in-depth interviews with them, that, in fact, you know, the, the membership was, for purposes of the intent of the law, involuntary. And we were ultimately usually able to convince Washington of that, and the people got permission to go. But in the interim, it could be pretty tough for them. The portfolio that I took on involved um, keeping track of the Jewish refusement community, that is, people who, who were Jewish background and had applied to emigrate but, but been refused permission. How did the Jewish immigration work? Because there were a lot of th forces in play uh, 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 at, this, at this particular time as, uh, as far as a uh, big effort on our our part uh, uh, to get um, Soviet Jews out of, out of uh, the country, either to Israel or to the United States. But how did, at your level, how did it play? I mean, who were they, and was it mostly, were they coming and asking but not getting anywhere, or what? Well, um, first of all, um, if, they, if they came to us and they already had permission to emigrate, there wasn't any major problem, uh, except in the rare cases where there might be an issue of Communist Party membership. Um, it was pretty straightforward. You know, we, wor we worked out the paperwork, uh, and they exited to Vienna. That's where everybody went. In Vienna, they would then decide whether they wanted to go to Israel or to the United States. Um, all of them, ostensibly, were exiting with permission to go to the United States. The Soviet Union was not giving permission to people to emigrate to Israel, but it was turning a blind eye to the fact that 80% of them were going to Israel, um, and you know, and some went to the United States. So uh, that you know, that would be the usual pattern. Uh, you know, somebody who's Jewish would apply. You know, they might get some local harassment. You know, and some hassles. But if they stuck with it, they would finally get permission to emigrate, they would get their foreign travel passport, get their exit visa, come to us, make their application, go through the paperwork, which could take a little bit of time, go to Vienna, and then go one way or the other. Now, the, the, the problems arose for people who were refused permission to emigrate, and these were who we called the refuseniks. And the basic reason why people were refused permission to emigrate was that the Soviet government said that they had state secrets. And they weren't going to allow people to emigrate who had secrets, uh, at least until enough time passed that their secrets were no long, would no longer be classified as secret. Of course, they all insist that they didn't have any secrets. Um, whether they did or not was awfully hard to judge. Um, as one, one Jewish refusenik that I got to know uh, put, put it, um, he said when he applied for permission to emigrate um, and he was refused on the basis of having state secrets, he said, well, you know, I work in television. You know, 
we're 10 years behind the Americans, so what secrets could I have? And they replied to him, well, that's the secret. <laughs> um, so, uh, you know, some of them may actually have had what the, the Soviet regime considered secrets. Obviously, their definition of secrecy would have been much more restrictive than uh, the definition of secrecy in, in American society would be. But the, the people who would uh, apply to emigrate and be refused would be in the kind of situation that I told you of um, having, because they applied, basically, you know, cut off their ties, uh, you know, be sort of out on the street, not literally, but figuratively, and, um, you know, become, be, become pretty desperate to, to get out. Some of them would become politically active, uh, and, uh, and others would, you know, would, would not, but would keep trying to get permission to emigrate. In a way, looking at this as a society function, sort of how Jewish were these people? I mean, were they, uh, did they go to a synagogue? Or is this just, a, were they sort of forced into a category by their passport or, or what? Obviously a lot of variation. Um, you know, I think a lot of um, Jews went through a period of being fairly well assimilated into Soviet society. Um, I think um, uh, as, um, as as things developed over time, uh, and they, and they got the impression because of the Helsinki Accords and things like that that they might be able to leave, um, and particularly as they began hearing that some Jews were being allowed to leave, um, they began to identify themselves much more. Uh, as Jews, uh, some in a very religious sense, some more in a, in a national uh, sense. Um, so, and particularly as as they became refuseniks, you know, they began they increasingly identified themselves as Jews and as dissidents in terms of Soviet society. Um, but there, you know, there were certainly times in um, in the Soviet Union where you had a lot of intermarriage between Jews and non-Jews. Um, one of the famous um, Jewish refuseniks and, and political activists was uh, uh, Anatoly Sharansky. Oh, now used the name Nat Natan Sharansky. And... Um, was very active in Israeli politics. Oh yeah, he's minister, or has been, in, in the cabinet there. Um, his brother, I got to know his brother, um, because um, Natan had been arrested and, and jailed during my first year in Moscow. And when I took on the Jewish Refusenik portfolio in the political section, it was my job to follow things like uh, his arrest. And we got, of course, a lot of inquiries about how he was doing and things like that. I got to know his brother and his mother. Um, his brother had originally had no intention of emigrating from the country and did not particularly identify himself as a Jew at all. He was married to a, a Russian woman, non-Jewish Russian woman, uh, and was assimilated into the society. But when his brother got arrested and sent to jail, uh, he became politically active on behalf of his brother. And, uh, and I gave him a lot of credit for that. 
because, uh, you know, he wasn't originally motivated, as his brother was, by strong religious feelings or anything like that. Uh, he was motivated by wanting to help his brother, uh, and he took a lot of risks to do it. Eventually emigrated to the U.S. Um, and uh, with his wife, uh, who, you know, didn't you know, originally particularly want to. But anyway, uh, what happened with these Jewish refuseniks is a whole bunch of them would come, came to Moscow and sort of hung out in Moscow, got to know the other refuseniks, and um, they would all gather in front of a, the, the Jewish synagogue in Moscow on Saturday afternoons to exchange information. And basically, um, I had gotten to know during my year in the consular section one or two Jewish refusenik families through other acquaintances at the embassy. And uh, I got into the pattern of going down to the synagogue on Saturday afternoons uh, and hanging out uh, on the street in front of the synagogue with this hundred or so group of Jewish refuseniks and just walking around and chatting with people and finding out what was going on. And, uh, you know, it was almost, it was always worth a report Saturday afternoon. I would go back to the embassy and write a report on it. And uh, it was the source of our information for responding to congressional inquiries, family inquiries, and that sort of thing. But I had to be introduced personally. It was all, you know, these people that I had gotten to know, these couple of families, introduced me all around the Jewish refusing community. And that personal introduction was their way of saying this guy's okay. And they would also tell me who on the other side was okay and who they suspected wasn't. Now, did you, uh, were sort of KGB uh, operators uh, mixing with the crowd there and all that? Yeah, yes. And everybody assumed that. And people would point out people who they thought were the KGB folks there and uh, that sort of thing. What was going on? Was there anything particularly going on in this group outside of the fact that they were uh, sort of uh, stuck out like a sore thumb in that society and uh, were trying to get out of the country? Was that sort of the main thing? Was And the Jewish refusing group, yeah. per se? Um, for most, they were, they had cut by this time, they cut their t ties to the country, and they just wanted out. And uh, for a small minority, they uh, allied themselves with the human rights movement, the Soviet human rights movement, and became sort of politically active in pressing for liberalization of Soviet society. And those tended to get into more trouble uh, with the law than the, the, the ones who were politically active but strictly focused on the issue of emigrating. Uh, Sharansky, for example, um, although he was always focused on getting out of the country and always fo focused on the refusing issues, also became sort of a spokesman within the refusing community for the human rights movement generally. Did uh, Sakharov, was he, he of course was a full-blooded Russian, but uh, was he a, a figure in, in this, as a political officer, or did he have sort of his own handlers within the embassy? Um, 
Sakharov would periodically come into the embassy with his wife, and he would always come initially to the consular section. So we would see him, and even on occasion we talked to him. But usually if, you know, if he was there, somebody in the political section pretty quickly came down to, I, I, I to talk to him. I would imagine <laughs> so. I mean, it is, uh, yeah. Did, what, uh, did you feel this group uh, and the human rights, this is all, and what is it, the third basket or whatever it was, yeah. the Helsinki, of course, did you feel they were making any dent or was this sort of a, a sort of a hopeless set of idealists or what? What did you feel at the time? The, um, the interesting thing was that the Soviet Union actually printed the full text of the Helsinki Accords mm -hmm. as it was required to do under the te terms of the Accords in its major newspapers. Mm -hmm. So people had actual texts of these things and could read the actual words of this agreement the Soviet Union had signed. And, uh, um, and they tried to push that as far as they possibly could. These are the... Uh, the uh, human rights human activists, rights. but also the refuseniks too, because right of emigration was part of the Helsinki Accords as well. Um, on, the, on the refuseniks, you know, they were an incredibly intelligent and gentle group of people. Um, the, the human rights activists were, of course, totally nonviolent. I mean, you wouldn't, I mean, there was no hope of, you know, if you had, if you had started advocating yeah. violent stuff, you would have disappeared very quickly. Um, but they were much more alone. They had a much smaller community, they were more harassed by the regime, and uh, they had, they just had a, a tougher time of it. They would, you know, have a much greater chance of being arrested, being sent out to, to prison or to exile under difficult conditions. Uh, it was tough. And generally speaking, the, in terms of dealing with us American diplomats, the Soviet government was less concerned with our dealings with the refusing community than with the human rights activists who were actually about trying to change Soviet society. But they, they, if somebody was sufficiently active, they, they could harass us diplomats in different ways. Uh, for example, if they didn't like someone, whether it was a refusenik activist or a human rights activist, and we often had these people to our place for dinner, um, and we would have to meet them outside and escort them into our apartment building because there was a Soviet policeman outside each apartment building who would not let people in unless you did so. Um, so we'd go out and meet them a block or so away and escort them in, and they would sometimes plant somebody with um, a camera and uh, a lot of flash bulbs. And this person would be in everyone's faces, uh, shooting flash bulbs in their faces and pretending he was taking pictures. So that was a mild form of harassment. I remember on one occasion, me and this other guy in the political section had met with some people that the regime did not like at all. 
and we both happened to be downtown in central Moscow that night uh, at different uh, functions with our cars parked on the street. And I had three car tires punctured, and he had four punctured. So they must have been a little bit more angry with him than they were with me. <laughs> so that was they had you know little ways like that of uh, letting you know that they weren't happy with what you were doing. People who became really active, basically, they had a slogan. You know, you're either going to go east or you're going to go west. And the Soviet government at that time had a policy of handling dissidents that became too annoying in one of two ways. They'd arrest them and send them to prison or into exile in Siberia, which meant going east. Or they would just kick them out of the country, which meant going west. And any Jewish refusenik, of course, would be more than delighted to take the going west alternative. Uh, but that you never knew whether you were going to get the going east or the going west. And uh, I never found in observing this any particular pattern uh, to it. Uh, that was discernible to me. Uh, they almost seemed to choose to do it randomly. Uh, so that, you know, almost as if they were not going to let people get the notion that by getting involved in these activities, they were going to get a ticket to the West. In the mid-1980s, President Ronald Reagan pressured the Soviet government under Mikhail Gorbachev for Sharansky's release. William Westner was the principal deputy assistant secretary for European affairs at the time and played an important role in the exchange that freed Natan Cheransky. And one of the, the jobs that fell to the principal DAS was to head up the committee of agencies with an interest in the exchange of spies. And state played a coordinating role, but of course people with the biggest interests were CIA and the Justice Department. And it's entirely possible you could go a whole year and nothing would ever come yeah. up, you see. But Tom said to me, this is one you've got to watch carefully, he said, because I can tell you now, whatever you're able to negotiate, by definition, will be unsatisfactory to CIA. And I said, why? He said, because there's a mentality that says, if the Soviets are willing to accept it, you didn't ask for enough. <laughs> Somehow you've been doomed. That's true, I've run into that kind of a mindset. Yeah. And what you had here were certain assets, as they love to call them, yeah. languishing in prisons yeah. in various yeah. places, and then you try to sweep them all up in an exchange. Okay. Mm -hmm. And there was an interest in the White House. I'm not sure how great the interest was, but somewhere over there to get Natan Sharansky out. Mm -hmm. And of course his widow, excuse me, his widow, what a slip, his wife uh, was relentless impressing his case mm -hmm. and keeping, you know, some... Was he a spy, though? Well, the short answer is no, he was not. Mm -hmm. And that's the amazing thing. Yeah. The KGB had become convinced that he was a spy. Mm -hmm. 
and this was based on either erroneous information or information that they had misinterpreted but the CIA went as far as I've ever known them to go to, to disclaim somebody. Yeah. You know, usually it's, we have yeah. no comment. Yeah. This is a matter of policy and it's a wise policy. Sure. But on this one, so anyway, our old friend Fogel from East Germany, uh -huh. good friend of Frank Meehan's, and yeah. you certainly want to talk to Frank about uh, his relationship with Fogel. Uh, he was the master of you know, negotiations Exchange, going Mr. back Exchange. to able yeah. powers and all that. And a lot of bridge time. Yes, and he, you know, he he carried on. He was the one of the main players yeah. in all these things that came through church channels for many, many yeah. years, as I talked about earlier. It was a way of financing the East German government. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, he got into the act here, and there were two checks husband-wife team had been arrested in the United States mm -hmm. on spying charges. Mm -hmm. And it turned out the case against them was rather weak. Mm -hmm. And anyway, a meeting, I called a meeting and there was somebody there from CIA whom I knew well, he had been a station chief, one of four station chiefs I worked with in, during my time in Bonn, was somebody from the Justice Department. Um, and an assortment of other characters, and somebody from the White House, lower level. And we cobbled together an exchange in which these two checks would be released, because Justice really felt and didn't have a case. And there were a couple minor, quote, assets that would be released from East German prisons but the big thing was Sharinsky. And we broke up, and the agreement was that if the Justice Department would chop on this, because that's, they had to make the judgment as to whether the case against these two children, why, um, then it was a go. And amazingly, I must have gotten a telephone call back, I think it was the next day, from Justice, saying it's okay with us. Mm -hmm. And I called the White House and said, we've got to go on thing. And then I got back to Fogel, I forget what his role was, but he always had some role. And the thing was on track. Several more days passed, and I got a phone call from my friend in CIA, saying, uh, about this deal with Sharinsky, he said, uh, we want to add some names to the... <laughs> I said, Gus, I said, it's too late. What do you mean it's too late? I said, well, you know, we said if justice agreed, we'd go ahead and the White House is pleased, and so we're going to go ahead and send the word out. Oh, he says, oh my God, this is terrible. So he signed off. Next thing I know, there's one of the big shots from over there came to call on George Schultz and just tore me limb from limb. So I'm told, you know, that I had exceeded my authority and that what I'd done was very bad and, and, and Schultz just brushed him off. And uh, so Sharinsky saw the light of day and... Uh, 
the exchange was at the Glienicke Brücke between Potsdam and Berlin. And fittingly, by this time, Frank Meehan is the ambassador to the German Democratic uh -huh. Republic. So he brings Sharinsky to, you know, he's, he's at that end, and Rick Burt is at this end with a limousine waiting for Wiscombe to the airport and then on to Frankfurt and then on to Israel. Yeah. That was the way it would he's go. He's now a power in Israeli politics. Well, that's, that's yes, you know, he then went into uh, sort of seclusion for several years, uh, shunned the public eye. He and his wife had several children. And then, quite a while afterwards, came into Israeli politics and was, I believe, in Netanyahu's government. Didn't he hold a portfolio? I think so, yeah. And so on. But I remember it was 6 a.m., and I got a telephone call, and uh, it was a bright, shiny day. It was June, and uh, Rick Bird from the car uh -huh. said, Bill, I somebody here would like to talk to you, and then Sharansky came on the phone, hello Mr. Wesner, heavily accented, hello Mr. Wesner, I want to thank you, I want to thank the American people, I want to thank the American president, thank you very much, <laughs> and, <that was> it. <laughs> and I said to Rick afterwards, you can wake me up any morning with that kind of news, <laughs> it was kind of a Oh, nice. final chapter to my time at the right. State Department. By 1990, thanks to international pressure and internal Soviet reform movements, hundreds of thousands of Soviet Jews were being allowed to emigrate. Natan Sharansky moved to Israel after his release, where he continues to serve as an influential politician and human rights icon. The music for this podcast was provided by Carol Schmeidberger, licensed under Creative Commons. ADST is an independent nonprofit organization located in Arlington, Virginia. ADST's oral history collection, begun in 1986, contains over 2,500 oral histories, unveiling the horrifying, thought-provoking, and the absurd events that helped shape foreign policy. If you have enjoyed listening to this podcast, please make a tax-deductible donation to allow ADST to continue its work at www.adst.org. My name is Jack Stuckel. Thanks for listening. <laughs>